Let's get right into the Word tonight. We're going to be looking at chapter 8 this evening, Judges chapter 8. Over the last few weeks, we've been going through the, the Judges and specifically Gideon. And you recall uh, that in chapter 6, we see this young man, Gideon, who was uh, of the tribe of Manasseh. And his father, Joash, was a, an idol-worshiping man in the town that they lived in, in Oprah. And his father had set up an altar to Baal, which, as you know, is a Canaanite god that is very well known in the uh, Phoenician and Canaanite region, had been for a long time. And God had called Gideon to, to go against the Amalekites and the Midianites and others from the east. And the reason being is these, this band of people would come into this area in Manasseh near where Gideon lived. And during the time of harvest, they would come into their fields and destroy their crops and anything out in the fields, whether it was livestock or grain. And it was certainly impoverishing them. And so God brought Gideon to, to the limelight, in a sense, by, by just simply calling this young man. And at the time, you recall, he wasn't very confident in himself. And God, through a series of events in his life, confirmed that God was speaking to him indeed and also confirmed that God would give him the victory over the enemies, over the Amalekites, over the Midianites, and over those people of the East. And you remember last week we covered Gideon, or Judges chapter 7, where after Gideon, before God allows him, the victory for the army that was out in the field, the Midianites and the Amalekites, God first had to move on Gideon's heart to destroy those things at home and to get things in order at home before he would export that victory outside of his home. And the same thing is true for us. You know, God always works in our lives. And if we're aware of it and we're willing to submit to God, he wants to do that work in us and it's always about the relationship, isn't it? Because he wants to do a work in us before we take that out into the world. And that really is our witness, is what God has, what he's doing and what he's done in us, and also what he's going to do in the future. And so, but things have to be done first in the private before they can be made public. And, and so we see Gideon doing that. He's faithful in destroying his father's altar at great peril to his own life even. And finally, his dad comes to his aid when the countrymen or the area there, they wanted to kill Gideon because they were all Baal worshipers. And he tore down the altar and the pole, the sacred wood image that they would worship to the goddess Asherah. And so Gideon tore that all down and sacrificed. And you recall that God had told Gideon that he was going to give the Midianites and the Amalekites into his hand. And in order for God to really encourage Gideon because of his weakness, which we all have, Gideon puts a fleece before the Lord, a, uh, a lamb's wool, if you will, and put that out. And you remember he did a series of two tests to kind of test the Lord to make sure that God was indeed the one who was speaking to him and that God was going to indeed give him victory. And God in his graciousness, as he always is, he gives to Gideon his wish, in a sense. Not that uh, it was a wish. It was He gave him his desire to really know for sure, and certainly God did that. And then we, we looked at uh, chapter 7, where God now was going to bring this army of 32,000 men of Gideon, of the men in that area of Manasseh and Naphtali and Asher, and he was going to bring them down to a, a well. They call it the Well of Herod. And it was basically a stream, uh, a spring actually, that came up from the ground. It's there today. And uh, that water would come out and God used this natural spring to kind of winnow or to uh, reduce Gideon's army. That was the second test that God had used. The first one was if anyone was fearful or, or they were afraid, uh, that, that got rid of a lot of people. And finally, at the end of it all, Gideon's down to 300 men. And so Gideon uh, goes out, as you recall, and he encompasses with three different armies of 100 men with uh, trumpets in their right hand and pitchers in their left hand and torches inside the pitchers. They surround the camp of the Midianites at night, and then they break the pots 
break the, um, the pitchers, they take out the torches, they blow the trumpets. The enemy is completely con uh, confused. Now they're running around. They're very confused. And then they starting to, they're starting to kill each other. And then they start making a run for it toward the east, which is the Jordan River, which is uh, more of their, their, the, where they lived. And so they were trying to escape and get over the Jordan River. And we can pick up, if we could, let's just read uh, verses 19. It says, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him were in uh, chapter 7. I just want to get the context here as we get into chapter 8. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp, and, and beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets, they broke the pitchers that were in their hands, and then the three companies blew the trumpets, they broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands, and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried and fled. And when the three hundred blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his company throughout the whole camp. So there was great confusion, great confusion. The army didn't even know what was happening, who was a friend, who was a foe. And it says, And the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. So now we have these tribes that are immediately to the north of, uh, of Manasseh, which is uh, Naphtali and uh, Asher and Naphtali. And so these men, they're all chasing the Midianites. And they come down, uh, excuse me, verse 24, Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, Ephraim is the tribe immediately to their south of Manasseh. So they send for this tribe to come down against the Midianites and seize them as uh, from the uh, from the excuse me and seize from them the watering places as far as Bethbara, which is a place we believe uh, uh, John the Baptist may have baptized Jesus at this place called Bethabra, which is called the place of the ford. It's a it's a narrow place. It's a a rocky place. It's not really uh, too deep of water there. Very easy to do that kind of thing. It says, Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeeb they killed at the winepress of Zeeb. And they pursued Midian and brought the hundred or brought the heads, excuse me, of Oreb and Zeeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. And that's where we pick up right now. So let's get right into verse 8 here, or chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now the men of Ephraim, they said to Gideon, they said, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went up to fight the Midianites? And they reprimanded them sharply. Now we don't know exactly why the men of Ephraim did this. Um, it could be because they felt slighted. Remember, whenever the, the battle, whenever the armies would go into battle, one of the great uh, benefits of war is the plunder afterward. And so these Midianites and Amalekites, they had a lot of gold and a lot of goods. And so it would be uh, silly for any one of the tribes to not want to take part in the, in the war for the, the cleanup afterwards. And so maybe they felt slighted because they weren't able to take part of that plunder, perhaps. Or it could have been because Ephraim was held in such high esteem. And why would a tribe that was held in such high esteem not be counted among the others? And it's certainly, especially since it was just right to the south of Manasseh where Gideon uh, grew up. And so they were, they were upset about this. And um, you'll recall that in the Bible, after Solomon's reign, the, the country of Israel was split into two. And you know this, the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. And those northern ten tribes were often called Ephraim. Uh, often in the prophets, uh, God would just call that whole chunk of the ten tribes up north, he would call that Ephraim or Israel. And then he would call Judah or, or Jerusalem, he would just call it Judah. But it included Judah and Benjamin. So it was just really one name that God would use to uh, identify those ten tribes in the north. And, and it was because of uh, Ephraim's uh, preeminence, really. If you recall, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim were the sons of Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 48, it talks about 
uh, how Manasseh was born first and Ephraim was born second, but yet Joseph put his hand on Ephraim and thus gave him the birthright, making him the uh, giving him the birthright, thus making him more prominent. And so this tribe was very significant, and that's why the prophets would even call the northern ten tribes, they would just call the whole thing Ephraim or, or Israel. So going on to verse 2, it says, So he said to them, Gideon said to the men of Ephraim, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? Remember that Gideon was from, from Abiezer. It was a group of people within the tribe of Manasseh. And so when he, when he makes a statement like this, it may sound kind of odd, but basically what he's saying is, you know, the gleaning of the grapes, the gleanings of any field were the outside of a field. When they would go and harvest a field, they would leave a couple rows all around the perimeter of the field, and that would be used for people, the poor people, and uh, those passing through. And so he's basically saying to these angry brothers now, are, are not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim, are, aren't the leftovers of, of, of your tribe better than the vintage or the fatness of Abiezer, which, which is really a nice way of appeasing them because of their anger. And so, and, and this was a really interesting time in Gideon's life because it was a very tactful way to diffuse a potential powder keg between these two tribes. And if you know the history of Israel, it is uh, their history is such that oftentimes tribes would fight with each other. We see that uh, throughout the Bible, and we're going to see it as we get to the end of Judges as well. It's a horrible thing when brothers uh, who are on the same team fight one another. And um, I love what it says in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. And this is exactly what Gideon was doing. He was returning a soft answer to uh, a tribe that was very powerful, that was uh, very proud. And, and he returned a soft answer by basically elevating them above himself, above their own tribe. And so, you know, it, it is important for us to uh, remember that whenever we're in situations where somebody has wronged us or is angry or heated against us, it's very easy to return uh, uh, like for like. And when somebody calls you a name, you know, your flesh rises up and, and it's very easy to get into a yelling match. And one of the greatest shows or the greatest proofs of, of a spiritual man is to be able to take stuff like that and, and not return evil. Right? Isn't that what it says in Romans twelve thirty one, I believe, or Romans 21, verse something, I forget. <laughs> you know, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. In fact, I like what it says in Ecclesiastes. It says, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. And why? For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And words can, as you know, uh, Gideon could have returned something and he could have really gotten their face, but instead he diffuses the whole situation by, again, lifting up uh, the other tribe. And um, so it's important for us to, to learn something from that too, because we see it here and we should be modeling the same thing. And perhaps today um, you've been in a situation where somebody's kind of gotten on your case or gotten in your face. And instead of returning anger, you decide to, you know, take the, uh, to take it on the cheek in, in a sense and, and turn the other cheek. And, and that's a good thing to do because our mouth will get us into trouble every time. You know, when he says, uh, is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? You recall back in uh, chapter 7 that we just read just a few moments ago in verse uh, 25, it was the it was the Ephraimites, those from Ephraim, who came down and helped them pursue 
the Midianites, the Amalekites, and they were the ones who captured the two princes, not the two kings, but the two princes of the Midianites, uh, Oreb and Zeeb, and they killed them. And this is one of the reasons why uh, Gideon could say to them, you know, look what you guys have done. You've captured, we haven't even gotten the kings yet, and you guys already captured the two princes. And so what you've done is a really great thing. And so that really kind of ended the squabble between the two of them. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that people will squabble over stuff like this. But that is the flesh if we're not careful. And so let's go on to verse uh, 3. Because Gideon says, God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? You guys have done this great thing. We haven't even caught the kings yet, and you got the two princes. And then notice what it says. Then their anger toward Gideon subsided when he had said that. And we're going to see Zeba and Zalmunna captured later on in the chapter. But let's go on to verse 4 here. It says, When Gideon then came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over. So now they're moving eastward toward the Jordan River because all this, this battle had happened on the west side of the Jordan River. Now the, the, the enemy is fleeing now, going over the Jordan, trying to get over there. And now that's where Gideon and his army is going as well. So he and 300 men who were with him, they crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. And then he said to the men of Sukkoth, Sukkoth is, or Sukkot is how you pronounce it, I believe, in Hebrew. Uh, this town, Sukkot, was right on the eastern uh, side of the Jordan River, not too far away from the Jordan River. And so they just get over the border. They're tired. They're exhausted. And he says to, Gideon says to the men of Sukkot, he said, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they're exhausted. And you can understand why. And he says, for I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. So these guys are different. These are the kings. The other two were the princes. And so Zeba and Zalmunna, and this is the first time we see these two kings mentioned in the Bible. Zeba, his name means man killer or sacrifice. How would you like your mother to name you that when you're born? You know, for your mother to look down at this cute little bundle and say, man killer. <laughs> How great is that? Or sacrifice. Maybe this kid is so ugly. You know, never mind, I won't go there. And Zalmunna, his name means deprived of protection. You know, isn't that a nice thing to name your son? Deprived of protection. Amazing. And the leaders of Sukkot said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? And you know what they were really concerned about is this tribe, because remember, um, these people groups on the other side of the Jordan, uh, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, they dwelt on that other side of the Jordan River, and they're thinking to themselves, unless we see the heads of these two kings uh, we don't want to have any kind of relationship with you. We don't want to partner with you because if you don't get them, they're going to come back and take care of us. And so uh, we see them kind of pushing back on the children of Israel, on Gideon and his army now, because I believe they were afraid, afraid of what would, might happen to them if they led the other men uh, if they were part of capturing those two kings. So verse 7, So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And then he went up from there to Penuel. Now Penuel is just uh, a little bit, a town a little bit more to the east of Sukkot. And it was known for, it had a really big tower in this place. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel. And again, they're still pursuing these two kings and their leftover army. And so he spoke also to the men of Penuel saying, When I come back in peace, oh, actually I skipped a verse, I'm sorry. Uh, verse 8, let's go back to verse 8. Then he went up from there to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkot had answered him. So he, had, he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back, I will tear down this tower. So now you've got two of these people groups, uh, two of these towns of men that should have been the, their, their allies, are now not really helping them for fear of the Midianites, if, something, if they don't wipe them out then they're going to have to deal with them. So uh, Gideon makes a promise. You know, when we come back, after we get these two guys, we're going to come back and take care of business here. And so 
In verse 10, it says, Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and we don't really know where this place is, but probably somewhere south of both of these towns in a desert area. And so uh, Zeba and Zalmunna were there at the city called Karkor, or this area called Karkor, with their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. So now we see in this verse 10 here, uh, we can see how big the army of the Amalekites and the Midianites and these other from the east, how many it really comprised, 135,000. That's where we get that number. So 120 of them had fallen. Now they're chasing these 15,000 that are left along with these two kings. Then in verse 11 it says, Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell on the tents on the east of Noba and Jogbaha, which are two other cities. And he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. And when Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he routed the whole army. He, he basically destroyed the whole army, confused them, tore them up. And it says in verse 13, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Herez, and he caught a young man of the men of Sakot and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him, the leaders of Sakat and its elders, 77 men. And then he came to the men of Sakat, and now he's going to deliver on the promise that he had told them because of the way they treated them when they were pursuing these kings. Now they literally have the two kings in their hands. They haven't killed them yet, and they bring them back, and they go into this town that they first came to and said, See the two guys here? We're going to take, we're going to um, inflict some. Uh, we're going to teach you. In fact, I think I like how it says here in verse 16. Um, uh, let me back up to verse 15, actually. So, then he came to the men of Sakoth and said, Here are Zeba and Zelmuna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zelmuna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took of the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them, he taught the men of Sukkoth. And so uh, I like this word taught. He, he examined them with these things. So it was a pretty painful examination, painful interrogation, something they probably wouldn't get by in a court today. Uh, but then it says that they tore down the tower of Penuel, which is that other town right to the east of Sukkoth, and they killed the men of the city. And so, and he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So now they've got these two kings, and evidently there was a, an event that had occurred, and it's not recorded for us in, uh, in the Bible, as far as I know. I uh, looked into it, and I don't believe there is anything. There, there's no record of it. But evidently these, these kings of Midian, they killed some men at Tabor, which is Gideon's family, his, his brothers in that area. And so they, they said to them, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. And so Gideon, no doubt here, is going to act as, uh, in a sense, as the avenger of blood now for his brothers, because now he knows in this event, again, that's not recorded for us, that these two kings had killed. And so Gideon is going to take vengeance upon them uh, for killing their brothers in cold blood. And so, verse 19, then he said, They were my brothers and the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And so you can imagine uh, these two kings now um, you know, when they were captured, who knows what they were thinking. But now that they know that they've been found out and they were indeed the killers of um, Gideon's family or his brothers, the men of his tribe, now they were very afraid and now they know that they're going to die. And, and he said to Jether, uh, Gideon had a son named Jether, his firstborn, and he says, rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. And you can imagine these two kings now. It's a, it's a great shame in that culture for any king, great king of any country, 
to be killed by a woman or to be killed by a man who is inexperienced in war. And so what Gideon is giving his son Jether is giving him this, uh, this, this honor, really, of slaying these two kings. And it would be a real embarrassment for these two kings to be killed by such a young man who had no skill in battle yet. And so, verse 21, Zeba and Zalmunna said, uh, after his son wouldn't do anything, uh, they said to Gideon, Rise and rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And so Gideon arose, and he killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Evidently, the Midianites and the Amalekites, they were, they were called Ishmaelites because they came from that group of people. And, of course, they had the crescent moon uh, ornaments, which um, you know, they, Gideon took them from the camels' necks. Now notice as we get into verse 22, 22 here is really where we can learn a, a lesson and we can apply this to our own life uh, this evening. As we look at verses 22 down through 28, we see a, a time in the life, an event in Gideon's life that he probably, if he could go back, he would uh, undo this if he could. And so let's read it. It says, Then the men of Israel, they said to Gideon, now remember, at this time, there, were, there was no king in Israel. We know that Saul, many, um, a few hundred years in the future yet, uh, from the moment we're talking about now, would be Israel's first king. But that's why they call this the book of Judges, because there was really no king over the entire land of Israel or Canaan at the time, because it really wasn't um, united yet. There were pockets of things that were happening. And so they were just deliverers in areas of Israel at the time. And so the men of Israel, after this great battle, said, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So this had been something that uh, the Midianites had been doing for years. And uh, they were finally, they were so tired of it. And now that they had this great victory, they were so excited. They wanted to really exalt um, Gideon and in a sense, make him a king and certainly make him a ruler over them. But Gideon, verse 23, was wise enough to say, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And, and you know, this is one of the, good things about Gideon is that he knew that God ultimately had the right to rule over his people. And that would be the best thing. That would be the best thing for there to be a, a theocracy rather, rather than a monarchy. Uh, God would have been the one and should have been the one to rule over them. But you know, the temptation of any lesser man than Gideon at this time would have been very great at this time to take that those accolades, to take that praise and to allow them to uh, make him rich and make him a ruler over him. But Gideon knew better. And that was probably the only thing in this section of Scripture that he did right uh, because we see something really horrible now happening, beginning in verse 24. It says, Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you. Yeah, I don't want to be a king. I don't want to rule over you, but, you know... He says, uh, he says, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. So after they had plundered the Midianites, all the Midianites had gold earrings in their ears. And so uh, there was quite a, quite a bit of gold. And so Gideon says, why don't you just give me the gold from the earrings? And they were glad to do so. They were willing to do that. And this is where the problem really began. And so, and this is where we have to be really careful. So they answered, and they said, We will gladly give them, and they spread out a garment. And you can picture this in your mind. And each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of gold earrings uh, that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes that were on the kings of Midian, and beside the chains that were around their camel's neck. This is about 42 pounds, if I'm, if, uh, it's about 42, 43 pounds worth of gold that now is there, and he takes all that gold. And Gideon made it into an ephod, and he set it up in his city in Oprah, and all Israel, and here's, the, here's where the, the music goes to a minor key, <laughs> And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon 
into his house. And when you think of a harlot, you think of some, a woman who has been unfaithful. She's not only been unfaithful to, to, um, to her husband, perhaps, if she even has a husband, but she's, um, she's committed adultery. And so what, what they've really done here is, in addition to maybe any physical adultery they were involved in, they were certainly guilty of spiritual adultery because now they had started playing the harlot with this gold ephod that Gideon had made. They began to venerate it. They began to worship it. And, you know, it's interesting that it, it was a relatively easy thing hundreds of years prior to this for God to bring Israel out of Egypt. But even it took him hundreds of years. Not that it was God's fault, but it, it was easy to get Israel out of Egypt, but it was hard to get Egypt, or to get, um, Egypt out of Israel. And so because of their idolatry, because of the, the nations that were in the promised land that they didn't completely drive out, they became entangled and ensnared again with their idols. And this had been something that we're going to see as we go along, had been something uh, in their track record that, that went on for hundreds of years. And it wasn't really until God had allowed them, the northern ten tribes, to go into captivity by the Assyrians and Judah and Benjamin by the Babylonians, and it wasn't until they came back from Babylon that, that they really had kind of severed their ties with this whole idea of idolatry like they were um, accustomed to doing up until that time. They were finally broke of it, in a sense, and, and they never really continued like they were. They weren't perfect, but nobody is. But they, they, God seemed to have drilled that point home to them. But notice this ephod. It was something that only the high priest was supposed to wear, the ephod. And the ephod, remember, had the 12 stones of each one signifying the tribe of Israel. And it would have a pocket in it where they could have the Urim and Thummim, these two stones, a white and a black stone. And so now Gideon makes this golden ephod. And it's very uh, possible that he wasn't really trying to uh, make himself a priest per se. Uh, it could just have been a symbol of civil authority rather than some kind of religious or priestly authority. And this is proven because it wasn't until after his death that the children of Israel went um, whoring after it, in a sense. So all the time during Gideon's life and while he was alive, they, they didn't worship it. They didn't, uh, it didn't become a problem until after his death, which is usually the way it goes. Whenever the, 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 the judge dies, then the children of Israel as is typical of this, and typical really of human beings, of the sinful, of just our nature uh, that we're born with, <laughs> we go downhill and, and we go back to like a, like a dog returning to its vomit. So they did with their idolatry. And so, um, you know, the ark, uh, the tabernacle, and the priesthood at this time was still in Shiloh, which was to the south of Manasseh where Gideon was and where this ephod had been set up and where they began to worship it. But all the while they were doing that, you can just see the departure of the children of Israel because instead of going down to the ark, and, and maybe they were uh, going down there for some of the feasts, don't really know at this time, but the priesthood was already established down there. It was corrupt, certainly, and it wasn't doing well, but there it was in Shiloh, and we see it there um, we see Joshua erecting the tabernacle in Joshua chapter 18, and it's there until 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3. Hundreds of years go by, and then finally the Philistines take the ark, and the, the priesthood is kind of dismantled uh, somewhat at that time. But then it says, uh, Then Gideon made it an ephod, and he set it up in his city, Oprah, uh, which means fawn, that's the name of the word, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to the Gideon and his house. And this uh, place called Oprah is really right on the border. It's on the southern border of Manasseh and uh, just north of the border of Ephraim. So there's this little town there where this place was set up. And um, so all Israel played the harlot with it. And it's interesting that God had Gideon destroy his father's altar of Baal. And it's like, it's like going from one altar, pagan altar, to 
what they think might have been a little more sanctified altar, but it's really no different because if God is not involved in it and they're worshiping something other than God, it doesn't matter what the object is. They could have put the Ark of the Covenant there, and if they worshiped the Ark, it would still be idolatry. They had to worship God, not some kind of image made of gold. Again, it was easy for God to get Israel out of Egypt. It took a long time for God to get Egypt out of Israel. And uh, as is true for some of us when we came out of the world and uh, living in the world and the lusts of the flesh, you know, uh, God can, can bring us out of that. And then it's a process of sanctification to get the world out of us. And that just takes time. And we have to be patient with that process. But God is involved in that process. But notice that it didn't matter because uh, this altar of Baal that, that, that Joash, uh, Gideon's father, had made, it was really no different than this uh, golden ephod that uh, Gideon had erected. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. We're going to look at uh, an, uh, something, an event in the life of Israel, Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. And as soon as we start reading this, you're going to understand why we're going here. Because Again, it wasn't long after God had gotten Israel out of Egypt. They were in the desert. Moses was leading them. And look at what happens in Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4. It says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Does that sound like something that God would do? I'm going to deliver you from a place where you're, you, know, you were dying and, and having a tough time, but I'm delivering you so that I can kill you out here. You know, they just they had no concept, and certainly they were struggling, but they were also very disobedient. And they were, um, God was trying to prove them. That's what the Bible says. He proved them in the wilderness to see if they would be obedient to him or to follow their own carnal desires, which they had learned in Egypt. <laughs> Again, God trying to get Egypt out of them. But notice verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out here, out of Egypt, to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, there's no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread, this manna that God was giving to them miraculously every single day, several hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even a million or two. And now they're complaining about this worthless bread, they said. So the Lord, as a result, he sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, notice, when he looks at it, he shall live. Now, does that require faith? When you're bitten by a serpent and you're supposed to look at this bronze serpent that's up on a pole, that requires faith of me to look at that pole and believe, and then God would heal them. That requires faith, doesn't it? Now, uh, and so we have this pole, and you remember when we were looking at the the churches of Ephesus or the churches of of uh, Pergamum and um, uh, that that they had these uh, altars to these different Greek gods in these cities in the in the first century A.D. and one of them was Asclepius, who was uh, you know this the serpent around the pole with the wings of Hermes. We see that in all the medical, it's, a, it's an icon for medicine and uh, for health care. And that's where they got it. That's where the Greeks kind of ran with this idea of medicine. And, and they took it right here from the Bible, I believe. And they, they just uh, twisted it and made it into a god, right? No different than what we're going to see happens here. So, uh, so they were supposed to look at the pole and the serpent on it. And if they looked at it, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he would live. And now fast forward now a couple hundred years, and we get to 2 Kings chapter 18. And again, this fits very much with what we're reading here with Gideon and this bronze 
or this uh, gold ephod that he made because the children of Israel began to worship it, to begin to make it an idol. And no different with the children of Israel here, hundreds of years beyond what we're reading tonight. And so it says in 2 Kings chapter 18, now Hezekiah, so we're several hundred years beyond. It says, it came to pass in the third year, we're looking at the first verse in 2 Kings chapter 18. It said, it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king. And his mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was evil, I'm sorry, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Hezekiah was one of the reformer kings along with Josiah. It says he he removed the high places. Notice, this is important. You can circle this or underline this verse. He removed the high places, which was a good thing. And he broke the sacred pillars, which is another good thing. He cut down the wooden image, which is this um, idol of uh, where they would worship Asherah. And he broke in pieces, notice, the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it, and they called it Nehushtan. Nehushtan. So, we, again, we still see Egypt still in Israel. God, you know, hundreds of years have gone by and, and they just, they, they have a propensity, just as any people group does, if they resort or if they move away from the one true living God, the only recourse is to worship the works of man's hands. What's left? If, if you don't have a God who's supreme over all things, then what else are you uh, left to the the work of man's hands. It's it's humanism. It's it's uh, worshiping idols, and that's what they got into. And so, um, you know, beware after a battle is won, because Gideon now, after this great victory of the Amalekites and the Midianites, what does he do? He kind of he doesn't take the the kingship. He takes the money. He takes the gold. He fashions it to an ephod. And, and, and they began worshiping it after his death, and it became a problem for the children of Israel. And isn't it just like when you come off of some spiritual battle or a physical battle? Maybe you've been wrestling with an issue of sin in your life, and all of a sudden you, you, you begin to get victory over it. And then uh, you get encouraged, and, and, there's a, and, and if we're not careful, we can let down our guard. And it's very possible this happened to Gideon after all of this huge battle and all this great victory that God did against all odds, 300 men against 135,000. Think of it. I mean, if there's not a time to have a Super Bowl party, it would be after something like this, you know, get out the wings and break out the, you know, 120 inch television and watch, you know, Dallas uh, Cowboys play. And so, um, but you know, he came off this great victory and he let his guard down and he, he falls into this area of sin, which he should have never have done. And this is what we tend to do. We, we let our guard down uh, when we've gained some kind of spiritual victory or, uh, and it causes us to want to relax and kick back. And often these kind of things happen too when we're on retreats, you know, where the Lord really speaks to you. You know, you can go up to the castle in Pennsylvania uh, when we used to go there or to um, uh, Lakes uh, um, uh, Otosaga. <laughs> Otosaga. We could go to Otosaga and the Lord could speak to you there and really encourage you. And really, you're kind of like on a mountaintop. You know, we're eating this really good food. We're getting fed. We're going for walks. Life is good. Life is good. And then we get really built up. We get really encouraged. And then you can expect after that, that when you go back home, when you get off that mountaintop and you start climbing down the hill, there's going to be problems awaiting you. And, you know, those times of refreshing are good, and we, we need to hold on to those things. And God does that to encourage us, but we have to understand that we can't stay there forever. There, there has to come a time when we have to come down off of the mountain and face reality because those mountaintop experiences are really that for us. They're, they're there to shore us up, to, to build us, and to renew us, and to restore us. But it doesn't 
negate the fact that we got to go back to problems back at home. We got to go back to disobedient kids. We got to go back to a situation at work that we're not excited about. We see that in the life of David even. Remember when his sin with Bathsheba occurred, it says that it came at a time when the kings were supposed to go out to battle, but he laid back after all of his years of victory and he just decided, you know what, I'm going to stay back home. And perhaps he knew Bathsheba, you know, her husband would be going out to the battle because he knew he was part of the army. And, you know, David just decided to kind of kick back. And I wonder what happened when he walked out on the top of his uh, palace that night on a, on a nice evening, you know, just, you know, kicking back when he should have been engaged. And that's where David fell into his, one of his greatest sins of his life was at that time uh, resting on his laurels, resting on his lees. And so after, uh, there's usually uh, some kind of, you know, defeat after, not always, but you can bet that whenever God is speaking to you and, and really encouraging you, the devil knows that as well. And the first chance he gets, he wants to cut your legs out from underneath you and cause you to fall flat on your face. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. This is a really interesting passage of scripture. Matthew 17, looking at verses 1 through 21. Let's just read it, and I think it'll make sense to you. Uh, It's the Mount of Transfiguration. It says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to him. And you remember what happened on that mountain, you know, as they saw... Uh, Moses and Elijah, they they were completely overwhelmed. Peter makes a fool of himself. And then finally on their way down, it says, um, now as they came down from the mountain, verse 9, that Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him saying, what then do the scribes say, or why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah is come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And certainly, Jesus here is talking about John the Baptist's ministry Uh, And then the disciples understood, verse 13, that he spoke to them concerning John the Baptist. But notice what happens. So now they have this great, wonderful uh, mountaintop experience, and now they're going to go down the mountain. So they've had this wonder. I mean, think of it. Uh, I mean, to, to see Jesus transfigured before them and for him to just unveil some of his glory, however much of it he did, totally blew them away. And then they see Moses and Elijah speaking to him. And one of the Gospels tells us that they're speaking of Jesus' demise. They're speaking of his crucifixion. And so they're, they're discussing this. And so they're having this great high. I mean, think of it. They're, he truly is God Almighty in the flesh. But then they come down from the mountain. And when they had come... When they had come to the multitude, after coming down from the mountain, a man came to him, kneeling to him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic, suffers severely, for he often throws him into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. So Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out, and the child was cured that very hour. But notice what happens in verse 19. The disciples came to him privately. You know, they, they just experienced this great, um, you know, experience. And they said to Jesus privately, why couldn't we cast it out? You know, we just had this wonderful vision of you being glorified and coming off that mountain. There was like nothing we could, nothing that we couldn't do. You know, that they were walking on air in a sense. And he said, because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will, be, it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and by fasting. And so they have this spiritual defeat after this mountaintop experience. And, and that's typically what happens. Just like Gideon having this great 
experience. And then finally, the devil likes to come in and just take your legs out from underneath you, totally discourage you. Maybe you fall into an area of sin again after God has given you months of victory of it, and now you find yourself dabbling in it again and and feeling totally condemned, feeling like you're not even saved perhaps. And yet, if you're in that position tonight, and maybe even this week you've fallen into something that God had delivered you from from years ago, and maybe even you had some confidence in your own flesh that, you know, I can do this, I can do this. And... um, and then, and then you get kind of walloped by, you get blindsided by this area of sin coming into your life. And, and um, these things happen. But the thing is, is we have to be on our guard just as much after a battle or after a mountaintop experience, just as much as before it happened. Because usually before a battle, we're on our face, we're on our knees, we're begging God. And then after the experience is, is, is you know, we've gotten the victory, we kind of rest, and that's when the devil loves to play games with us. And so it happens to all of us. And I've noticed it in my own life many times how the Lord uh, or the devil likes to do that. He likes to give you a victory, and then he just comes and he takes your legs out from underneath you through various means. Sometimes it's just discouragement. You know, you come off of a mountaintop experience, and, and then the very next day your hot water heater blows up and floods your basement. And, um, you know, you're... Um, House catches on fire, burns to the ground while you're at work, and you come home to the you know smoldering uh, flames, <laughs> you know, and um, these things happen. But notice in verse 28, it says, "Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more." And that was that was the end of the Midianites, and the country was quiet for 40 years. It's interesting. This 40 years, this is the last period of time where there was peace like this in the Book of Judges. The last time they had this period of reprieve. And so let's go right into verse 29 here. It speaks of the death of Gideon. It says, Then Jerubbabel, remember, Jerubbabel was uh, Gideon's name, and his father, Joash, changed his name to Jerubbabel, which means let Baal plead, because it was Gideon who broke down that altar of his fathers that was used by the whole town. Uh, evidently. So Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and he dwelt in his own house. So he goes back to Oprah. And so Gideon had 70 sons who were, in it, who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And you know, it's interesting, even though Gideon wasn't made a king, he lived like a king. He had uh, this golden uh, ephod, and he had 70 wives, which is, uh, which is huge. And he had one concubine from another area and it says, um, and this just really speaks of, uh, of polygamy, which we know is never a good idea. Uh, the Bible tells us, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 2, that, God, that marriage was meant for one man and one woman. And whenever a man in any culture begins to multiply wives, he's in trouble. He's in trouble. Um, and, and, and there's always problems. As you look throughout the scripture, whenever you see a man with many wives, there's always trouble. It doesn't mean it's a woman's fault either. It's just that there's problems. And, um, and so Gideon was no different. He, he had many wives, and he also had, it says in verse 31, and he had a concubine who was in Shechem. So he has his unlawful marriage from a woman in Shechem, and she bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. And we're going to see in the next chapter that Abimelech is going to create a lot of problems for the house of Gideon, and um, it's not going to be pretty. And so you can read ahead and we'll see that. But you notice the fruit of, of them going against, of, of Gideon even, going against the Lord's command, because God always wanted for there to be one man and one woman, and these two shall become one flesh. You can't become one flesh with, you know, 70 other women. Or like um, like Solomon, you know, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines or vice versa. I forget the name. But either way, it was a disaster because he had a 1,000 wives or a 1,000 women in his life. And uh, that created problems for him because he tried to satisfy them all. He just tried to satisfy them all. You recall in Matthew... The Pharisees came to Jesus about whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. And Jesus even said, For have you not read, he who, who, he who made them at the beginning, 
made them male and female, and he said, For this reason a man shall leave a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, not wives, but wife, and the two and the two shall become one flesh, so then there are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. And so we see uh, a flagrant disregard for uh, this idea, this plan of God. And these men knew that. Gideon had, they had the Old Testament. You know, they had the, the law at the very least. And so we know that in Genesis, he was very much aware of this. But disregarding it and multiplying like a king would, many wives. And, and, and I think this verse here, just to go off on a small little tangent, is a good one to write down. Because it's in um, Matthew, certainly 19, verse 3 through 6, but also... Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. 22 through 24, but verse 24 specifically. You take those two verses, and you might want to write them down in your Bible, because right now, as you know, there's a great uh, attack on marriage. More than ever before, in our state, especially uh, of New York, there is such a great attack against not only marriage, but against the family. And it's happening at alarming rates. And, um, and the church is confused about it, and they need to return to the Word of God. There's so many in the church and so many denominations, even around uh, us, that are like, oh, it's okay. It's okay to be uh, a homosexual. It's okay to, uh, to live in fornication. You know, uh, even a male and a female living in fornication, they're not married. Yeah, they're living together, you know, just kind of trying the shoes on, make sure they fit, you know. I mean, this, this kind of thinking is, is wrong. It's sin. It's sin, and God will never approve of it. And we need to have a backbone as the church to stand up and say, this is what the Word of God says. I don't care what any of you think. I don't care who says what about this. This is what God says. God loves people, and He loves you. And for you to go against what He, what he is designed to be right and pure and holy, you know, when you go against that, there are consequences for that. There are consequences there are physical consequences and there are spiritual consequences. And they compound on each other when, you know, these things happen. So it's really important that you, Christian, know what the Bible says concerning this. Because you need to share that. We need to share that and make no apologies for it, regardless of who we're speaking to. Tell them the Word of God. This is what, the, this is what God said in, 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 in Genesis chapter 2. A man shall leave his father and, the, and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. The two, the husband and the wife, the male and the female, two of them become one flesh. Not a man and a man, not a woman and a woman, not a man with many wives, but a man and a woman. There's enough difficulty getting those two together, much less having 70 wives and having another wife out of uh, an illegitimate wife, which he did, as uh, Gideon did, as we see here. It says, verse 32, Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died uh, at the good age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Remember, the Abiezrites were just, they were, uh, was from Abiezer, who was a descendant of of, of Manasseh. So he was of the tribe of Manasseh. Verse 33, And so it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel, again, they played the harlot with the Baals, and they made Baal Berith their god. So ba Baal was a Canaanite goddess, as you know, and, and they would be all different flavors of this god throughout the land. And it was just a horrible, a horrible thing. Turn with me to Psalm uh, 106, and we're going to end here in just a few moments here. But let's read what it says in Psalm 106. Notice what the psalmist says, beginning in verse 34. And, and I believe the psalmist was thinking of Gideon and, and this time of the judges when he was writing this. The psalmist here is, is writing, again, let's pick up in verse 34. Speaking of Israel going into the land but not completely eradicating the inhabitants, as God had told them to, notice what the psalmist says. It says, they did not destroy the peoples. In other words, 
the children of Israel didn't destroy the Canaanites like they were supposed to, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. And we see that tonight. We see that it was a snare to them when they came out of Egypt uh, with the calf in the desert, and now things aren't getting any better. Now they're lusting after this golden ephod of uh, of Gideon's. And make no mistake about it, whether it's the Jews or whether it was any other people group, everyone would do the same eventually. So there's no people group better than another. So we, we have to be careful we don't look down upon the children of Israel and say, well, they would do that, but I would never do that. That's a really dangerous place to be. So they mingled with the Gentiles, verse 35, and they learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. In other words, to the gods there, they burned their children, and they shed innocent blood, verse 38, the blood of their own sons and daughters, can you imagine, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. You know, one of the uh, interesting things about going on a trip to Israel is you see these pagan idols, or you see these pagan altars, and one of them that's very well restored and very plain uh, is in Megiddo, and it was a Canaanite altar where they did these kinds of things. And that altar is there today. We saw it with our very own eyes. And just the amount of lives, the amount of young people who were killed on that altar to a false god is just horrendous to even consider. And, and you see it with your own eyes. And, and it just makes you realize, wow, things really, they just, you know, people at our core, we are not good. You know, man is not inherently good. Man inherently is evil. And he needs God, right? And so... They were defiled by their own works, it says, verse 39, and they played the harlot by their own deeds. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord of Jehovah was kindled against his people, so that he abhorred their own, his own inheritance. He gave them into the hands of the Gentiles, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. And this is what we see over and over again in the book of Judges. And we'll see it even in the time of the kings and, and certainly in First and Second Samuel as the Philistines were always warring with Saul and David. Nevertheless, verse 43, many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and for their sake he remembered his covenant, and he relented according to the multitude of his mercies. Aren't you glad for God's mercy? That even though they didn't deserve it, even though we don't deserve it, God is very merciful to us when we cry out to Him in sincerity. And even if we commit the same sin again, God sees our heart at the time and, and He's compassionate. We have to remember that. He's a, he's a compassionate God. He loves us and He loves you and He wants to draw you near to Himself. But notice, for their sake, He remembered His covenant and relented according to the multitude of His mercies. He also made them to be pitied by all those who carried them away captive. And so we see this horrible thing that, you know, the children of Israel had done by, again, after Gideon passed from the scene, you know, falling into idolatry again. It was going from Baal and now to this golden ephod. You know, it's, it really makes no difference. It really makes no difference. And yet God in His grace allowed 40 years after this of peace. Actually, it was 40 years of peace and then um, they began to after Gideon's death, they, they began to worship. And so, thus the children of Israel, verse 34, did not remember the Lord their God. They completely forgot about Him, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, Gideon's family, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. And so that really ends this uh, period of time. We call it the fourth period in the time of the judges. And this fourth period was really ver uh, chapter 6 through the end of chapter 8 here. And uh, a lot of really interesting lessons, you know, that can be learned uh, from the life of Gideon, you know, the least of which is, you know, how God can use uh, the most unlikely person to accomplish his will. He would use this young man to accomplish his will. And his faith wasn't perfect. His faith was feeble. 
and yet God would use him. And also we see in these three uh, chapters, we see the compassion and the grace of God and encouraging his faith rather than upbraiding him and making him feel horrible about himself. God was compassion, compassionate and did these miracles and, and did these wonderful things to encourage Gideon because of what God was going to call him to do. And we also see what God can do with very little. God didn't need a huge army, even a 32,000-man army. You know, at the end of it all, he would have less than 1% of his army. Less than 1%, like 0.94% of his entire army would be the guys who would go against and get the job done. So God, you know, he, doesn't, he can do a lot with a very little. He doesn't need a big army. You know, he doesn't need horses and chariots. You know, God does so many awesome things that are beyond the natural or he does things that we didn't even consider because our eyes, our blinders are like this so often that we forget that he's doing something over here, a solution, something that God's going to do is over here but all we can see is the battle right in front of us. How is this going to happen? I can only see this and, and, and God all the time is saying, I've already got this planned. I've already got this figured out but you, you know, but you're, you got the blinders on, you know, and God in his mercy still delivers. You know, that, that's just how good he is. And we also see in these three chapters, here at the very end, we saw the dangers after a great victory, how we need to be so careful, so careful when we have a victory, to not allow it to go to our head. Certainly spiritual pride, the enemy loves that when, we're, when we are thinking that we are something because of what God has done. And so we have to be very careful. So if you have a spiritual victory, you know, rejoice in it. You know, it's good to rejoice, to give God thanks for it. But be on your guard and enjoy it. But never let yourself, let your guard go down. Because that's usually when the enemy likes to come in and discourage or even tempt you when you are at your, we are at our weakest when we think, when we are at our highest sometimes in our emotions. We can be at our weakest. And so something to be careful of, uh, certainly this week and as we go forward. So, Father, we give you thanks for tonight, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for Gideon, and we thank you for the, the things that we have learned from his life, God. Uh, so thankful, Lord, that you have given us your word in regard to his life, that we can understand that, Lord, if you can do something wonderful and even great through this man's life, Lord, you, you're, you haven't changed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You never cease to be who you are. And, Lord, we can thank you and trust you for what you're doing in our lives, too, Lord. Thank you for your compassion and your grace. Lord, thank you that you use us when, we, when our faith is weak and we need to be encouraged. Lord, thank you that you can do a lot with very little, God. And, Lord, protect us when we are coming off of a spiritual high, Lord, coming off some mountaintop experience, Lord, coming off of victory of some issue in our life. Whatever it may be, God, help us and protect us, God. And, we will probably learn that lesson more and more, over and over, Lord. As we, as we go through this personally ourselves, Lord, help us to be aware of how the devil likes to lurk when we are feeling good about ourselves, or even when it's justified, even when we are feeling good, because it is good to feel good about victory, God. But Lord, help us to be careful. And so we thank you for tonight, Lord. Please encourage us, Lord, as we go throughout this week, and encourage us during this time in our country, in this world's uh, history, Lord. Things are changing, and Lord, how we need to be more focused on you than ever before. Lord, help us not to let our guard down. Help us not to let our guard down, but rather redeem this time of quietness. Lord, please help us. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>